what a privilege it is once again uh, to be with you and to be before you. Uh, somebody asked me uh, before the first service if I was ready for football. Um, and I can say about this time of year in campus ministry, football is about the only thing I'm ready for. Um, as we're getting ready here, as students move in next week and all the preparations that go into that. Um, but this is truly a special way to, for me to start the school year, to be able to be with you and to be in the pulpit. Um, and so I want to go back to where we were last week. If you turn in your Bibles to 1 Samuel, uh, this morning we're going to be in 1 Samuel 17. Very familiar story, perhaps the most well-known story in all the Bible, David and Goliath, right? It doesn't matter what your religious background is or what your upbringing was, you have most likely heard of the story of David and Goliath. It sticks out. It does. It's a familiar story, but I I just want to begin this morning by asking the question, what is this story about? Because there have been so many explanations, there have been so many different applications, there are so many different directions you can go with this story. Um, And if you will forgive me, I'm not going to read the entire chapter this morning as it would take around 8 to 10 minutes to do that. But I do want to just go through the chapter with you here real quick at the outset and ask, what is this story about? So if you'd look with me there, verses 1 through 11, we have Saul, the king, Uh, The king that Israel demanded, the king that God gave them, and we have Saul and Israel and Israel's army at the Valley of Elah facing a familiar foe, the Philistines. And we have a champion of the Philistines, Goliath, a giant, who comes out day by day for 40 days and challenges the people of Israel and says, give me one man to fight. If I win, you serve us. If he wins, we serve you. For 40 days, he stands in the gap and challenges the armies of Israel, and not one man will step forward. That's what this story is about. Verse 12, the author skillfully, we have Saul, hapless and helpless. We have Israel, hapless and helpless. And the author points us in verse 12, now David. Now David. David enters the scene. He's the refreshing character of the story. As he comes in, he hears what this giant has to say, and he does not like it because the giant speaks against God. Verse 28, we have Eliab. We saw him last week, David's eldest brother, who speaks up as David is inquiring about what to do with this giant. In verse 28, we have Eliab telling his youngest brother, I know your presumption And the evil of your heart. Oh, really, Eliab? That's what this story is about. Verses 31 through 40, we have David finally before Saul saying, I'll I'll fight, I'll go, let me go. Saul saying, I'm not going. Okay, you can go. David before Saul, the contrast ever building between the two. That's what this story is about. Verses 41 through 49, we have David before Goliath and Goliath mocking David for his youth and for his size. Interestingly, not sounding any different than Eliab or Saul. That's what this story is about. Verses 50 through 54, David wins and so Israel wins. The battle is won. That's what this story is about. Verses 55 through 58, 
The climax of the story, not, not the stone in the skull of the giant, is not the climax. The climax of the story is young, ruddy David with the head of a giant in his hand, standing before Saul. And the contrast could not be any clearer. That's what this story is about. That's what I want to look at this morning. Before we look into this, let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this story. We thank you for David, for the story of his life, and for the story here. Father, I pray that you would guide my words, that you would guide our thoughts, that you would guide our hearts. Father, that you would speak to us through this story, we ask. In Jesus' name, amen. So what's this story about? Well, there's three things that are apparent in this story. Three things that are apparent by appearances we think we know. And the first one, I want to hone in on the first 11 verses, verses 1 through 11. We have the apparent problem. Well, what is the apparent problem? Well, as the story begins, the apparent problem is there's this freakish giant who is holding a whole army at bay. That's the apparent problem, right? This freakish giant. But let's catch some context here. First, the Philistines have been a continual enemy of Israel throughout the book of 1 Samuel. They will continue to be a continual enemy uh, of Israel and of David's reign as well. Second, we, the reader, uh, have just been privy to something that no one else other than Jesse's family have been. And that was Samuel the prophet being sent by God to the house of Jesse surveying all of his sons, and then God saying, David, the runt, the ruddy one, the beautiful one, that's my king. All of us, the readers, have been privy to that scene, but no one else. But in that story in 1 Samuel 16, um, we have this very well-known verse as uh, God instructs Samuel. He says, Do not look on the outward appearance or on the height of his stature, for man looks on outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. And this is what's interesting to me. Life goes back to normal, pretty much. David has been anointed as a king, yet he goes back out into the field as a shepherd for his father. Right? Life has gone back to normal. And lo and behold, as the story reads... We have Saul, the people's king, and Israel's army quaking at their boot, in their boots at the outward appearance of a man and the height of his stature. That is no mere coincidence, as the story reads. And we think about Goliath here. He had to be a, a spectacle to behold. Whatever he was, whoever he was, you know, so many people have tried to uh, explain away or try to figure out what he was and why he was a giant and where he was from and all these different things. Uh, but whatever he was, he was impressive to behold. A whole army does not know what to do with this man. He would have been, some, by the measurements we get here in the chapter, he would have been somewhere around nine feet tall. His armor alone would have weighed some 125 pounds. That's a seventh grader, I'd say, right? He's carrying a seventh grader around on him into battle. The head of his spear, just the head of his spear, would have weighed some 20-something pounds. Okay? This is a freakish giant. The apparent problem is this freakish warrior giant. But then there's Saul. 
Because the first 11 verses, the whole time, the, the, the question that is raging is, where is Saul? Verse 11, we see it. When Saul and all Israel heard these words of the Philistine, they were dismayed and greatly afraid. That's where Saul is. Saul. It is clear that Saul should have been the man to go out and meet this giant. It is clear Saul, who was identified when he was made king, he was identified as a head, head and shoulders taller than any other man in Israel. Saul should have been the man to go out to this giant. It was Saul who was anointed of God after Israel asked for a king. And he's a shivering coward. And so, here's what it is. The apparent problem, the giant, serving to point us and reveal the real problem, a helpless and hopeless Israel led by a helpless and hopeless king. That's the problem. That's the real problem. And what does it lead to? It leads to a whole army and its king being so focused on one man that they are utterly hopeless. We talked about last week the fact that we are enslaved to appearances. I think that is what First um, Samuel 16 and the theme that rages on throughout the David story points us to. We are enslaved to judging books by their cover. That is our nature. And it's some, but what chapter 17 swings wide open for us is that it's, it's not just a surface problem. It is something that emanates from deep within us, that problem. Saul and Israel had put their faith over and over and over again in that which could not save over and against the one who already had saved them. It's a theme throughout the Bible. You see it coming up over and over again. You start just in Genesis 3, right at the beginning. Genesis 3. From Genesis 3, 3 on, it's a glaring theme. We're prone to deal with things at a surface level, and it is to our peril. You think about Adam and Eve. They live in paradise. They sin. They plunge creation and all their posterity into death and decay. And what do they do? You remember what they do immediately? They hide they hide from the one who made the bushes that they hide in. That makes no sense. It's absurd, really, when you read it. Abraham, Father Abraham, right? God comes to Abraham. He says, I'll bless you. I will give you a land. I will give you an offspring that will be more numerous than the sands on the seashore. No sooner has he received that promise, the next chapter we read, as uh, Abraham is traveling through Egypt with his wife, Sarah, that Pharaoh comes to him and Abraham freaks out and says, you can have her. She's my sister. Israel in the wilderness, Exodus, over and over. You think about the miraculous salvation that God works in Exodus. Can you imagine having been in Egypt when God did what he did to save the people of Israel? No sooner do they get hungry in the wilderness, they believe in their hearts that God has led them into the wilderness to die. Over and over again, God's people putting their faith in things to save them over against the one who did save them. This is why David is so refreshing. This is why when David enters the scene in verse 12, we all breathe a sigh of relief. We love David. Because David comes onto the scene and he's, his immediate reaction is, what is the big deal? This is just a guy. Not only is he just a guy, he's mocking God. We are the armies of the living God, <laughs> David says. 
For David, his mind and his life are so enraptured with the living God that giants do not figure into the equation. That's David. For Saul and Israel, the giant serves to reveal their hearts. They lack courage, yes. They lack bravery, yes. But what is happening is that one man has caused them to utterly forget the creator of the universe. Their redeemer. Their deliverer. They've utterly forgotten. And here it is. When suffering and trial come, you find out what your faith is really in. When suffering and trial come, you find what your faith is really in. Now, this is a really pertinent issue for us, the church. Especially in this summer, as all the issues of our culture seem to have come to a head, and we are rightly left wondering, what is going to happen? What lies ahead for us? And that is, a, that is a very good question for us to ask and be answering. And I can tell you at least one thing that is going to happen. We are going to find out what our faith is in. We will. Do we have a God? Do we have a King? Do we have a Redeemer? A deliverer, one who has given us his gospel, one who has given us his son. Do we have that? We will find out in the days ahead what our faith is in. You think about it. When life gets hard for you, you realize what you are living for. What is the first thing that you go to to defend when life gets hard? Is it your image? How people perceive you, your nest egg, all the hard work you've put in. What is it? When you can't come up with an answer, you find out what it is you really think is going to save you. You do. What Israel found in the Valley of Elah at this day was that they were trusting in something that could not save them. A king, like all the other nations, a head and shoulders taller than any man in Israel. He couldn't save them. That's the apparent problem. The next thing that sticks out to us as David comes onto the scene is the apparent weakness. The apparent weakness. You look at verse 12, again, as is so refreshing as we're reading the story, wondering what's going on, and then the author says, Now David... Now, David. And I love how Eugene Peterson talks about how David enters the scene and how the contrast set up um, in the story. He says, Eugene Peterson says that the same imagination that treated Goliath as significant is the same imagination that treats David as insignificant. You get that? The, the imagination that looks at Goliath and says, our lives are over, is the one that says, David, not now, get away. And he's the one they need. And they don't even know it. Weakness is screaming at us in this, uh, in this story. The entire pa- uh, passage builds around David's weakness. You look at verse 28. Uh, verse 28, read that with me. Now Eliab, his eldest brother, heard when he spoke to the men, and Eliab's, Eliab's anger was kindled against David, and he said, Why have you come down? And with whom have you left those few sheep in the wilderness? I know your heart, uh, the, your presumption and the evil of your heart, for you have come down to see the battle. To which Alistair begged, Notes, what battle? They're not fighting. Verse 33, as David is before Saul. Saul takes one look and says, 
You're not able to go against the Philist- this Philistine to fight with him, for you're but a youth, and he's been a man of war from his youth. And then what's interesting is Goliath. <laughs> Goliath says the same things. 42 and 43. The Philistine looked and saw David. He disdained him, for he was but a youth, ruddy and handsome in appearance. And the Philistine said to David, Am I a dog that you come to me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. David's the only one that sticks out. David is the only one that's different than everyone else. Everybody else is saying and feeling and going after the same things. But you think about it, it is a fantastical claim that a little ruddy shepherd boy would come and win this battle for, pe- for the people of Israel. That is a fanta- that's why this story sticks out in our memory. But let's look at it. Look at how Saul is trying to deal. Saul was trying to deal with the problem. Look at verse 25 as the word is going around the camp about what Saul wants to do. Well, verse 25 we read that the men of Israel said, Have you seen this man who has come up? Surely he's come up to defy Israel. And the king will enrich the man who kills him with great riches and will give him his daughter and make his father's house free in Israel. What's Saul dealing in? Money, sex, and fame. Things have changed a lot in 3,000 years. And then David. David finally before Saul. And Saul agrees to let him go fight. But not without first fitting him with his army. Okay, you can go fight, but you've got to wear some armor. Now, if you think about this, any man in Israel would have been beyond honored to don the armor of the king. That's what David's getting to do there. But David ends up saying, I I can't do this. It's too much. He takes it off. Here it is. This is what Saul's doing. What all of them are doing. When you live life surface deep, you will only find surface solutions to your problems. When you live life surface deep, you will only find surface solutions to your problems. Again, Adam and Eve, they set the bar for us, right? One of the, the, the starkest thing that stands out about Adam and Eve at, at the end of creation is that they were both naked and they were unashamed. The first thing that happens to them when they sin is they see their nakedness and they're filled with shame. And so what do they do? Fig leaves doesn't do anything to the problem. But it's the first thing they do. Everything Saul tries here makes sense, and that's what makes it dangerous. Okay, he's going to fight. I need to put some armor on him. That makes sense. But we do the same thing when we are constantly pouring surface solutions on deep problems. Now, here's one that's stark in our minds recently, right? With all the Planned Parenthood videos coming out, we're all very aware more aware than we ever have been, perhaps, of what exactly goes on in the abortion industry, right? And one of the hashtags that has caught fire over the recent weeks is defund Planned Parenthood. Amen. But I want to give you a statistic that brings the issue a little closer to home. Did you know that over half of the children that are placed in the foster system in middle Georgia are exported outside of middle Georgia because there are not enough people to take care of them. Does that hurt? Obviously, this is an issue that's become very personal for me in the past year. 
As my wife and I, last fall, we went through uh, the training seminar at DFCS. And look, we were not on some crusade. We just wanted to see where we could help. And I was blown away. You know, I, I grew up, you know, I grew up with the worldview that anything the government does, it, do, it screws up, right? And, we, and as a child has been placed in our home, we, we've seen how overworked our caseworker is and how overwhelmed that department is. But y'all, it's because they need help. They need help. Because they have problems that they're dealing with every day, all day, that more money will never touch. You know, what's going to fix broken homes in middle Georgia? Only the Spirit and the Gospel. What is going to heal the racial tensions which have been raging in our country for decade upon decade? Only the gospel and the Spirit. What is gonna, who is going to take care of the foreigners that are pouring over our borders day after day? doesn't matter how they got here. Who's going to fix that? Only the gospel and the Spirit. But the question is, where is the church? Where are we? Again, this is why David is such a refreshing part of the story. Look at verses 34 through 37. David said to Saul, verse 34, David said to Saul, Your servant used to keep sheep for his father. Where there came a lion or a bear or took a lamb from the flock, I went after him, and I struck him, and I delivered it out of his mouth. And if he arose against me, I caught him by his beard, and I struck him, and I killed him. Your servant has struck down both lions and bears, and this uncircumcised Philistine shall be like one of them, for he has defied the armies of the living God. And David said, The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear will deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. And Saul said to David, Go, and the Lord be with you. David does not say, Saul, look, I'm tougher than I look. No, he says, Saul, God is with me. I know that he's with me. What David brings onto the scene of the story is what is completely lacking elsewhere, a complete dependence on God. What is lacking in the story and what David brings is that David comes in weakness and he knows that is precisely where he needs to be. And it looks foolish to everyone around him. Because real faith looks foolish to everyone around you. It's going to look foolish to your friends. It's going to look foolish to your family. It's going to look foolish to your co-workers. Real faith, real weakness, real dependence, it looks foolish to the world. Why does James, the brother of Jesus, in his letter say that true religion is visiting orphans and widows? Because this religion is founded upon a gospel and a Savior that came for people who could not do anything in and of themselves. This religion is founded upon a Savior who came for the most weak, the, the most helpless. And so we are, about, we are supposed to be about doing the same for the very same types of people. Look at verses 45 through 47. 
as David is face to face with Goliath. Goliath scoffs at this boy that they've sent to fight him. And we get this speech from David. It's his third speech. Verse 45. David said to the Philistine, You come to me with a sword and with a spear and with a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord of hosts. That does not make sense. You come to me with everything you need in battle. I come to you in a name. Continue reading. The God of the armies of Israel whom you have defied. 46, this day the Lord will deliver you into my hand and I will strike you down and cut off your head and I will give the dead bodies of the host of the Philistines this day to the birds of the air and the wild beasts of the earth that all the earth may know that there is a God in Israel and that all this assembly may know that the Lord saves not with sword and spear for the battle is the Lord's and he will give you into our hand. It's the third speech of David in the chapter as the author is gradually leading us more and more and more to listen to him and to learn from him. But it's precisely there. It does not make sense that a boy should prevail in this story. But it is precisely against the backdrop of human inadequacy and human weakness that the power of God is so clearly displayed. As Alistair Begg uh, points out, it's usually it's our ultimate qualification in the service of God is our weakness. Isn't this what Paul is talking about in 2 Corinthians 12? Familiar with this, as Paul recounts to the Corinthians how he had this thorn in the flesh and he pleaded with God three times to take it away. And God wouldn't take it away. And Paul says that Jesus said this to him, but he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Can we confess something together this morning? We are not okay with weakness. We want nothing to do with it. It makes us uncomfortable. We don't want to talk about it. We don't want to admit it. And we wonder why people's marriages fall apart and none of us ever knew about it. Or a man is totally hopeless at his job and nobody knew about it. Because we don't know what to do with weakness. We don't. It's why we're so bad at drawing closer to the weak and the helpless. Because we don't know what to do with it. We're not okay with weakness. But, the story tells us, that's precisely what God uses. So for the self-reliant among us in this room this morning, we have to hear the rebuke that we have to be broken of our self-sufficiency. We have to die to it. But there's also the flip side of those of you who know all too well how hopeless and weak you are. There's an exhortation for you that there is no such thing as useless in God's economy. There's not. You know, it sounds all well and good. It really does. Parent problem, 
the apparent weakness that we have to embrace. But how in the world are we going to do that? Well, I think we get the clue to that as well in the story. The final thing is the apparent victory. The apparent victory. It is, I've said it multiple times already, it is so improbable that David comes onto the scene and slays the giant. That is why this story sticks out. That is why David, and, David versus Goliath is a theme that has lasted for thousands of years and will continue on to this day. The more our culture rejects God, we will still hold on to that theme, David versus Goliath. We love a good David versus Goliath story. But actually, as we look at the end of the story, it's, it's kind of chilling. As we read in verses 55 and on that David comes before Saul, he's still carrying the head of the giant in his hand. And there we have it, the climax of the story. The young boy from the field standing before the head and shoulders taller king of Israel. And the contrast could not be any starker. And what's so remarkable about the passage from our point of view is that no one recognizes David for who he was. His own brother who witnessed his anointing doesn't recognize him for who he was. And at the end of the story, we see what the point is. And the point is this, that real victory is that the true king is here. That's it. Because we see there, verses 50 on, that the Israelites, they were cowering. They were dismayed, we are told. And all of a sudden, they are running after their enemies with shouts. And they win. And they overcome and so the question is, what in the world changed? It's when they saw David. In all of his weakness, they saw their true king who went before them and fought in their place. The true king who went to the middle, who went to stand in the gap when no one else would. He stood in the valley. He stood toe-to-toe with the enemy. And he did what not one of them could do. He wins. He conquers. He wins. This is David's victory. David won this battle. But you catch what happens. He wins. He conquers. It's his victory. But all of a sudden, his victory is theirs. David wins, and so they win. Sometimes you just have to let the Bible preach, and I'd like to do that here. Hebrews chapter 11, that great chapter, the catalog of the heroes of faith that the author of Hebrews gives us. This is how the author of Hebrews ties up the end of that chapter. He says, what more shall I say? For time would fail me. To tell of Gideon, Barak, Samson, Jephthah, of David and Samuel and the prophets who through faith conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lion, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Women received back their dead by resurrection. Some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging 
flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed with the sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world is not worthy, wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and in caves of the earth. And all of these, though commended through their faith, did not receive what was promised. Since God had provided something better for us. That apart from us, they should not be made perfect. Therefore, since we are surrounded by so great a cloud of witnesses, let us also lay aside every weight and sin which clings so closely and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. I just want to leave you with one question this morning. What in the world are you going to do with that? That at the end of the day, you and I have this problem of eternal significance. And the solution is completely counterintuitive. It runs completely contrary to every impulse in your being. That the way to win, that the way to live, that the way to face the giants is to live in the reality of a victory won by another on your behalf. We're just saying about it. Because the sinless Savior died, my sinful soul is counted free. For God the just is satisfied to look on Him and pardon me. One with Himself I cannot die. My soul is purchased by His blood. My life is hid with Christ on high, with Christ my Savior and my God. What are you going to do with that? What kind of person would you be? What kind of family would you be? What kind of church would we be? If that was the kind of king that we had. See, that's why I love the story. Because that's precisely the king that we have. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the story of one whom you anointed, whom you sent forth in weakness to stand where we could not. Father, would you make that story real to our hearts this morning, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. If you would stand and receive the benediction and remain standing for the doxology. If you know the story, if you know the king who has won the victory on your behalf, you can receive this benediction. 
Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. Amen. Thank you.